1: For the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org.
2: Hi, my name is Danielle Hartman, and I am the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Today is Monday, March 8th, 2021. And this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage Project. Our theme for today is entitled, The Beginning of the End of Orthodoxy's Control of Israeli Judaism. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein-Halevi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem and myself, will be discussing a current issue central to Israel and the Jewish world. And then Ilana Steinhain, Director of the Hartman Faculty in North America, will explore with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. At the Hartman Institute, we approach the Israel conversation as we do all our conversations from a perspective of Jewish values, seeking broad and deep engagement. Our aim is to encourage a serious and respectful conversation on Israel across political lines, promoting understanding and strengthening Jewish peoplehood. Let's begin. The landmark decision of Israel's Supreme Court recognizing reform and conservative conversions performed in Israel has reignited attention around issues of state and religion, especially on the eve of what has become our twice-yearly national election. The issue has been discussed in the Supreme Court for over a decade, but was repeatedly delayed by the court's hope that the Knesset would deal with the status quo, whereby only orthodoxy has authority on issues of personal status. That status quo, as the court has now ruled, violates Israel's legal commitment to human freedom and dignity for all its citizens, regardless of their national, religious, ethnic, or sexual identities. The basic law of human freedom and dignity passed in 1992 grandfathers in, that is, it doesn't apply to prior legislation such as the control of the rabbinate over issues of marriage. Where there is no explicit law, however, such as on the issue of conversion, the court gave notice that the rules of the game need to change and that in the Jewish state there can no longer be a policy which accepts orthodoxy as the sole legitimate denomination in Judaism. While having clear symbolic value, the practical implications are not yet clear. The state has long been legally obligated to recognize conversions performed by liberal Jewish denominations abroad. Non-orthodox converts are included in the law of return, though, The orthodox dominated rabbinate, which controls matters of personal status, doesn't consider them Jews or recognize their right to marry as Jews within Israel. This state of affairs will apply as well to the new converts in Israel. If, however, a large number of liberal Jewish conversions will be performed in the future, there may be a tipping point and the current status quo on issues of state and religion may be blown open. This could happen, for example, among the over 300,000 non-converted Israelis from the former Soviet Union, who cannot convert under orthodoxy since most do not want to be orthodox Jews. On the negative side, the ruling could provoke a backlash by the orthodox and right-wing parties, impelling them to challenge the Supreme Court's right to rule on issues of religion and state altogether. And so is this a turning point in the history of religion state? Are we seeing the beginning of the end of orthodox domination of Israeli Judaism? Or is this only a phase in a long battle that has been fought since the early days of the state and whose outcome is by no means clear? Yossi, wonderful to be together again as always. Always a pleasure, Gino. Let's dive right in. What does this Supreme Court ruling mean for you personally, for Yossi?
3: You know, I have two thoughts, and, and they're both about the symbolic meaning of this moment. The first is that Zionism has come one step closer to fulfilling its promise of creating a public space that reflects the totality of the Jewish people. That's the the, the most basic promise of Zionism is peoplehood. And when you hand over the keys to Judaism, the official Judaism of the state of Israel to one segment of the population and that segment that feels the least commitment to Jewish peoplehood, uh, I'm speaking of the ultra-Orthodox, then you've you've created what I consider to be an anti-Zionist situation. So Zionism today has taken one small step toward healing itself, fulfilling its promise. Uh, The second is we've taken a small step toward lessening the insult that we constantly convey to diaspora liberal Jews. And this is something that Israelis don't fully understand. But those of us who speak with liberal Jews on a regular basis, who meet with liberal communities, know the deep hurt. There's tremendous anger, but beyond the anger there's deep pain that here's the state of Israel, which they lavish with love and support. And this is how we respond to them, by delegitimizing them. So what we've done here is taken, again, a small step toward, toward rectifying that insult that we've been communicating to them for, for 70 years.
2: I, I really appreciate the, the dual symbolism. <laughs> it resonates very deeply with me. I wanted to to expand a little bit on the first point that you mentioned. One of the great paradoxes of Israel is how diasporic it became on issues of state and religion. Here it is, Zionism, we want to free you from the diaspora and they come home and we allow Israel to be a private, as if it's a private diasporic synagogue of somebody. There, There wasn't a deep internalization of what a a homeland of the Jewish people means.
3: It's such a great insight, Danielle. We freed the Jewish
2: people, but we kept Judaism in the ghetto. In the ghetto. We kept it in the diaspora. Here it is. Come home. We want the new Jew. This is the homeland of Jews. But how could it be the homeland of all Jews without being the homeland of all Judaism's? What are we supposed to do? North America is different where you're supposed to be, you know, a Jew at home and a, and a person in public. So here too, take whatever Judaism you want at home because, you know, you're free in Israel. But in the public sphere, you don't get to be uh, a human being. You have to act according to orthodoxy. That, that, that short sight of Zionism is something that, it's, that, that is mind-boggling. And, uh, and I want to talk to you about this further later on, because most Israelis still don't understand the internal flaw in their Zionism. You know, and in a period where so often we don't have great news, having a moment of a positive step forward for world jury, we're almost at Pesach, let's take that as a dayenu. Um, right. let, let's, let's do an eye engage move for a moment. And, and part of our commitment all of ours, yours, mine, Ilana, and the whole institute's, is that we always feel uncomfortable when there's one side, which is the right one, and the other side, which is the demon. That always flattens conversation and never leads to the type of peoplehood that that both you and I were speaking about. Because part of that peoplehood is 12% of uh, ultra-Orthodoxy. And it's, you know, add right-wing religious Zionism and a no small number of Traditional Sfardy Mesortijus, there's a lot of people in Israel who aren't comfortable with this legislation. Whether there's a majority or not is a separate question. We don't know that, but it's but it's a significant number. And to assume that they're just, they don't, you know, in quotes, don't get it is never a good way to go. Let's let's you and I try a little bit to make the best case we can for understanding. Because you know, we could call it the Haredi community, but that doesn't always help because that sort of paints it as a fringe. This this position, which is very comfortable with orthodox control over issues of state religion, and despite the fact that it is so alienating to so many others, wh- what's the best argument that you can make for the Haredi slash religious Zionist slash Misorati Jew who doesn't see the Supreme Court ruling? as a moment to be happy about, but quite to the contrary, are quite upset.
3: I think you're right that it's important to expand the category of those Israelis uh, who oppose this uh, this ruling. It's by no means just the Haredim. There's a vast hinterland, especially among traditional non-Orthodox Mizrahim, who come from countries where there was no religious pluralism. And so there's no real uh, appreciation for religious pluralism as a Jewish value, quite the opposite. The best case that, uh, that I can make for that position is that when we came home from a 100 diasporas, most of the Jews here agreed, whether, whether actively or passively, that the form of Judaism that they knew in the diaspora, whether in the Middle East or in in Eastern Europe, uh, was orthodoxy. And the synagogue I don't go to is Orthodox. And we'll be able to maintain a basic Jewish unity here. We'll be able to marry each other by maintaining a shared interpretation of Jewishness of Jewish legitimacy and given the fact that most north american jews are far away and uh, very few north american jews have made Aliyah, uh, it it doesn't really impact on jewish unity all right maybe may, maybe we're insulting them lo naim as we say It's it's not pleasant but it's not terrible but the consequences for importing religious pluralism here would be devastating for our ability to maintain basic Jewish unity.
2: I I want to expand a little bit on this unity issue because this is the crux of the argument, that if we don't have a singular rabbinate, Jews won't be able to marry Jews. That's that's the argument. And so, you know, it's, it's really interesting that the argument of those who are for the legislation, as you said, Israel is embracing peoplehood in the broadest sense, but those who are against it say that Israel's undermining Jewish peoplehood because it's creating a reality in which Jews can't marry Jews. You know, we're at home, the Haredim are saying, and they, or this whole community is saying. And an important part of being at home is that I don't have to worry I don't have to worry about assimilation. I don't have to worry about other forces. You know, this is the place where every Jew should be able to marry a Jew. And I think, see, I disagree with this Haredi move because there is a cost to this unity. The the flip side is everybody has to be like me so that I can marry you. That's the, but from their perspective, it's not about I being able to marry you. It's about saying shouldn't we at least have some level of consensus? The fact that we fight in the army is not enough and that there are certain battles that exist in Jewish life outside of Israel, which it's better that we don't have here. And precisely because there isn't a huge demand for conservative reform or liberal uh, conversions. And the fact that Israelis aren't fighting this is a proof they're saying that I'm right. I think something some awareness of the different religious demographics of Israel as distinct from the religious demographics of North America um, puts this position in a more favorable light, even though for me, the price of this, and I want to talk about this in a moment, is very, very significant. You have further Uh, thoughts on this, Yossi?
3: Yeah, the the fatal flaw, one of the fatal flaws in the argument is that we no longer have this broad consensus among those who are considered Israeli Jews. We have 300,000 Russian immigrants who are not halachically Jewish and yet have been accepted by broad parts of Israeli society, including ironically, many of those traditional Mizrahim who serve in the army with Russians, who marry Russian kids. And yet those 300,000 are inside and outside. There's an anomaly in Israeli society since the 1990s. And, and paradoxically, what's happened since the 90s is that the Orthodox establishment, rather than softening and becoming more flexible and figuring out, okay, let's bend the rules rather than break them, we'll bend halacha, and one can, you can look at the at Maimonides, you can, you can find ways of softening the conversion rules and still maintain an Orthodox framework, but they didn't do that. They went in the opposite direction. They, they imposed the toughest version, the most, the most strict and narrow version of Orthodox conversion. And this is to my mind, the fatal flaw of, of, of the Orthodox establishments position. Now, if you you know if if one can begin to to imagine a positive consequence for this my hope is that the religious zionists or those elements within religious zionism who are more flexible on the conversion issue might uh, develop a little bit of backbone now and say well y- this is where your your hard line has led and if we don't begin to open and accommodate then we're going to end up with the alternative uh, reform and conservative conversions. And uh, I think that that is a very interesting possible outcome.
2: That would be a positive spin, um, a hopeful one, um, a, a moment of growth. The other possibility is that we'll use political power to squash the Supreme Court. And one of the most significant issues that is not being talked about widely, and it's a major issue up in this next election, but probably in the next one and the next one also, is what's known in Hebrew Hebrew as piskataid Gabrut, the overriding clause. In Israel today, um, as in most of all democracies, there's a check and balance on the government and on the legislature in which the Supreme Court assesses the validity of some of policies and some of the laws on the basis of either a constitution And in Israel's case, while we don't have a constitution, we have certain basic laws, principally the law, which I mentioned before, and of human freedom and dignity. And it asks, what second is this against the laws? Is this against human rights? And the Supreme Court intervenes. It intervened when certain settlers were for building settlements on private land of Palestinians, which were stolen or they intervened when Israel did not want to give even basic minimal rights to refugees who came to Israel, or they intervened on issues of of state and religion such as this one. And even more than that, the fear is that they're going to intervene on whether a prime minister under indictment can be prime minister or whether there could be retroactive laws. So the Supreme court is, is a line of defense for basic human rights in this country against the abuse of the majority. Here, the challenge on this issue is that there isn't a strong secular and liberal counterbalance who are supporting the Supreme Court. And as a result, there are many parties who there's a whole coalition now of right-wing and religious parties who say, we need to have an override clause which doesn't allow the Supreme Court to override any legislation of the government, and if they do so, a simple majority of 61, which means any coalition could override the Supreme Court. Supreme Court says that's a law, that's illegal, it's a violation of human rights. All you need is a simple 61 majority in the Knesset, and then the Supreme Court is silenced. And by the way, this is a condition of many of the parties to passing this override law, and that is possibly the greatest danger to the future of democratic Israel that we, you and I have seen in our lifetime, Yossi.
3: You're worried about a
2: backlash. I'm worried. The backlash is here. And I'm worried that there isn't enough people fighting for this. See, this issue can't be the issue of North American Jews. They're not strong enough to run an issue here. And unfortunately, the majority of Israelis who are secular or who are liberal whether they affiliate with reform or conservative movements or not, is besides the point. The majority of them do not see issues of state and religion as a critical issue for them. They want freedom from religion and not freedom of religion. That I should fight to have a rabbi who marries me in a way that I want, or that I should be able to be buried the way I want, or that I could convert. You you have to realize that an Israeli who adopts a child today If if they're not orthodox, the conditions of conversion of that child in Israel is that that child has to, you have to keep Shabbos in the house, keep kosher, and you have to send that kid to an orthodox day school. So here you have a secular Israeli who's Jewish and is, and, you know, I had a case like this with a general in the army. This is a major leader in the country. And he wants, he's adopting a child and wants his child to be Jewish, but he can't, he can't convert his child to be like him. Now, this is a crazy reality. But still, it's the ones who care about it more are the ultra-Orthodox, and the rest of Israelis are too silent or passive. And this potential backlash will not just affect issues of state religion, but this could be the tipping point. It wasn't Netanyahu's, you know, desire to protect himself, and it wasn't the settlements, all that. Now you have this extra block coming in here who are saying, no more, we don't want Supreme Court, because Supreme Court doesn't let me do what I want. Supreme Court speaks about inalienable human rights. Supreme Court speaks about Israel, not as a jewel but as a country. And I'm afraid of that backlash.
3: So, you know, one, one question really is, how can American Jews be more effective in speaking to Israelis on religious pluralism? And what I found when I speak to Israelis on this topic is that when I speak about religious pluralism, when I use that language, nobody's home. There's no interest, it's not a value. It, it's It's not even seen as necessarily a democratic value. It's a Jewish problem, and it's a religious problem. and uh, that's that's not relevant for us. When I speak in the language of Zionism, of Jewish peoplehood, Jewish unity, and then when i when I also add the possible consequence, to Israel standing in Congress, then suddenly Israelis become much more interested. And I feel that North American liberal Jews need to speak Israeli.
2: It's a beautiful point, and I think it's, it's a great place, Yossi, for us to stop. Let's take a short break, and when we return, I'm excited to hear Ilana Steinhain's take on, on this issue.
1: In a year of big challenges, it's important to come back to big ideas. The kinds of ideas that inspire, ideas that start conversations, ideas that both speak powerfully to the moment and help us envision a better world. That's why the Shalom Hartman Institute is so proud to introduce you to Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas, being launched this spring, available both in print and online. The first issue tackles current events and systemic challenges alike, including whatever happened to Jewish pluralism, whether Jewish continuity is fundamentally sexist, and the communal implications of life in an extended pandemic. As a listener to this podcast, you're invited to claim your free copy of the inaugural edition of Sources. To get it delivered to your door or to your inbox, visit sourcesjournal.org today. Once again, that's sourcesjournal.org. Thank you.
2: Ilana, what are your thoughts? How do, you, how do you both personally and how do you, from within our tradition, expand our thoughts about this sure. very difficult question?
0: First thing I want to say is actually um, from the hat that I wear as being a member of a rabbinic organization called the International Rabbinic Fellowship, A few days ago, I saw a post by a senior colleague of mine who is a member of the conservative movement who made Aliyah. And what he wrote in his post was, I expected the mudslinging against rabbis of liberal denominations, but I didn't expect the silence among my Orthodox friends. So I wrote back to his post, statement coming, we're working on it, IRF, thank you for posting this. And that sounds like it feels pretty terrible. IRF is the International Rabbinic Fellowship. It has hundreds of rabbis, rabbaniyot, who are interested in thinking about these kinds of issues. And what did we write in our statement? It was like we tried to get everything in there that we could. Is it fair to call the organization liberal orthodox? or? It's international, so I wouldn't call it open orthodox. I, I would call it a little bit more like um, what Beit Hillel is in Israel. Um, for people who have heard of that rabbinic organization, that it's co-ed. And, you know, they call themselves like Rabbanut Kshuva, like a listening kind of Mm -hmm. uh, group. Like they want to hear what's going on on the ground and they want to be responsive. So that's, that's basically what we are. And in this statement, what do we have? We have exactly the point that you made, Yossi, about how Orthodox groups should be pushing for a different kind of conversion that gets rid of some of the obstacles instead of pushing more, which was the Nissan commission in 2018. But what do we also have in there? Israel is a state of all of its people, of all Jews, which means that there's something remarkable about this moment of basically saying a Jew is what they say they are, right? A Jew is what they say they are. And for me, it really goes back to, and I'm sure that different people see roots of this in different places. But for me, it goes back to the Gavison Maidan Covenant, which I think was written at Hartman in 2003 after two, after three years of hemming and hawing. The esteemed law professor, Ruth Gavison of Blessed Memory, the esteemed head of one of the prominent religious Zionist yeshivot, Rabbi Yaakov Maidan, they sat together and they said, how can we create a covenant between different Jews in Israel, and one of their suggestions was accept conversion for civil purposes from wherever it comes. A Jew is what they say they are. Now, the question I think becomes what happens when we start talking about personal status, not for civil purposes, but we start talking about something else. And I think that's where you're pushing. So I want to bring in two two values that I see at play here. The first is simply the dignity of people. It's just their dignity. And this is just an incredibly potent passage in the Jerusalem Talmud, in Tractate Brachot, chapter two, section seven, 5C, for those who really want to look it up. And it's about Rav Kahana. And Rav Kahana is really interesting because he starts off in Babylonia and then he makes his way to the land of Israel and he gets himself into trouble when he goes to Israel. He disagrees with what Rabbi Yochanan is saying. He gets himself into trouble. And even the, the apocryphal story is that he actually dies as a result of his insolence and Rabbi Yochanan has to bring him back to life. But this is his post story, here it goes. The young Kahana was a prodigy in rabbinic learning. When he arrived in the land of Israel, a scoffer saw him and said, what did you hear up in heaven? Making fun of this notion that he died for his insolence and then had to come back. Rev. Kahana responded, your fate is sealed, meaning you're going to die for saying that to me. There's a lot of death here, very intense. Very
2: pluralistic.
0: Not so pluralistic. (laughs) And so it was, he died. Another scoffer, excuse me, scoffer met Rabbi Kahana and said, what did you hear up in heaven? Rev. Kahana said, come on, didn't you see the other guy? Your fate is sealed. And so it was, the guy died. Kahana said, what is this? I came to the land of Israel to merit and study Torah, and here I am killing people because of how I'm being treated. Did I come here to kill the inhabitants of the land of Israel? I have to go back to where I came from. So he goes before his teacher, Rabbi Yochanan, and he says to his teacher, where should a person go if their mother mocks them, but their stepmother honors them? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit too gendered. I wouldn't have minded stepfather. Also, some stepmothers are very good, some stepfathers are very good, but where should a person go if their mother mocks them, but their stepmother treats them well? So Rabbi Yochanan said, you should go wherever, whoever honors you, that's where you should go. That's the house you should go live in. So Kahana went back to Babylonia, where he came from. That feeling of, if I were in a different country and not the Jewish homeland, I'd be treated better that's terrible. It's just, it's a terrible feeling. It's a terrible thing to do to people. It's its not being the homeland of the Jewish people. So that I put on one side of the scale. And I think it's really, really important. And I think that's why Gavison and me, Don, came to that agreement. They said, let's figure out a way that a Jew can say, I'm a Jew, and everyone accepts them as a Jew, because that's what they are. There's another side of the story, which is this notion of separation and unity, or divisiveness and unity. We have a concept in Jewish thought that comes from early rabbinic ideology that teaches us, it's a play on words. It's working off of a verse in Deuteronomy 14, verse 1, that says, don't cut yourselves when you're in mourning. It's a low tit to do. Don't cut yourselves. And the Sifri says, don't cut yourselves. It actually means not lotit go to do, don't cut yourselves, but lote asu agudot, don't become factions. Ela hayu kuchem aguda achat. Instead, you should all be one unified group. Now, this is the side Daniel that you were giving some voice to. What do you do when there are groups of people who deeply disagree about how Judaism should be conducted? And they're going to have an impact on each other. It's not like in the United States where I'll go to my synagogue, you'll go to your synagogue, you'll go to your religious court, I'll go to my religious court, and everybody's happy. We're talking about a place where people actually are impacted by each other in a different kind of way. So what do you do about that? I think there are a few different ways you could go, right? One way that Maidan and Gavison went is they said, for civil purposes, we'll recognize everybody. And for religious purposes, they were fine with the monopoly. But I think there's something more important even about the methodology that they used. The methodology that they used was one of dialogue and conversation. And to my mind, I don't know what the end result is. What I know is that if this is a point counterpoint, zero sum, these people get this from the Supreme Court and then these people push back for that. We're actually not gonna get anywhere. So, my question is: can we actually find the people who want to be bridges on this issue and want to talk to each other for three years, for five years, and work on this and build that kind of movement? Right? That's where I sit. I don't have the answer. I don't know if it should all be opened up. I don't know how that's gonna impact. I I don't, I- I'm being honest, I don't know how that's gonna impact. But there is something to building a movement of actual dialogue. And i you know this, I always say this, finding the partners. Who are the partners on each side who are willing to work together? There's no guilt by association. They're willing to go through the difficult things and say, this is what my group will accept. This is what my group will accept. And that, I think, it's a whole way of thinking. Ilana, I, first, thank you. I really appreciate the two
2: sides that you're trying to push us to. But I want to push all of us a little further because I'm all for dialogue and I'm all for trying to find compromise. But part of the reality that all of us know is that disagreements with us are so fundamental. So at the end of the day, even the Nisim so-called compromise only allowed for Orthodox rabbis on the court. And at the end of the day, they weren't insisting on Orthodox observance but at the end, women weren't allowed on the court. And at the end, somebody who explicitly said, I don't want to be Orthodox, at the end, it still came to a bottleneck of Orthodox power deciding who is on the courts. And part of the disagreements we have today are, you know, the differences between Hillel and Shammai seem small in the past. Yes. Um, they're very deep, and we know that. And we could dialogue from now to kingdom come. But even assuming that there are, and part of the problem we're facing is that there are groups who don't even want to have a dialogue. But even if we dialogue, look even Meidan and Gavizin. At the end, they said, okay, you could be a citizen, but at the end of the day, you can't get married. That's like crazy. Like in Israel, we're going to have religious pluralism in Ben-Gurion Airport. And the minute you live leave Ben-Gurion Airport, now you're in an Orthodox uh, dominated country. So that doesn't make sense. And don't we have to accept that on some of our issues there's not going to be agreement. And that despite that, the homeland of the Jewish people is not about compromise, but it's about making sure that everybody has their place and everybody has their space. And maybe when we dialogue, we'll be more open to that. But at the end, listen, I'm a reformed Jew. I'm a conservative Jew. I'm a modern Orthodox Jew. And you don't want to marry me? We'll come up with solutions for the divisiveness that comes later But this notion that through dialogue, we're gonna be able to work it out. I think our disagreements are too great. And the responsibility of Zionism is more to maintaining space for everybody than for forcing all of us
0: into a fictitious unified synagogue. Ilana. Look, here's what I'm gonna say. It's not gonna be popular with our listeners. I am torn. I am torn between two things. One, I am torn between the vision that you articulate, which I think is a compelling vision, and far be it from me who benefits greatly from the current system to pretend that there isn't some of that going on. Far be it from me. What you're describing is democracy. That's what you're describing. I'm pulled on the other side by, I think, two things, if I'm going to be totally honest. One, I am pulled by the concerns that there will be Jews in the state of Israel who literally can't marry each other because of illegitimacy under somebody's understanding of Jewish law. To me, that's not a small thing. It, it's just not a small thing. And the other is I'm pulled by whether that's even possible, by whether Orthodox adherents would even ever feel comfortable with that in any way. And, and maybe that's not fair. Right, and I know I'm getting myself into trouble on this podcast, but I do promise to be honest. Now I don't know which is the trump card of these two values, but I think in order to determine that, one has to understand the costs of either direction, and that's one of the reasons I push for dialogue.
2: Ilana, you never get yourself into trouble because, and I, I want to tell you, Israel is not about having always worked out policies. It's about trying to work out these tensions, and so welcome to the Zionist story, my friend. <laughs> We're not yeah. finished yet, so I embrace your. I don't share all of it, but the essential need to feel these dual tensions is is as I I embrace completely. Yossi, last word.
3: Yeah, I feel very strongly that this issue and other other issues of religion and state are so essential to affirming our legitimacy of the Zionist promise that it will require struggle. It will require very, very difficult social self-confrontation. And Ilana, you know, bear in mind that there are hundreds of thousands of Israelis today who are regarded as normatively, as practically Jewish. They serve in the army. We regard them as fellow Jews. And yet many Israeli many Israelis can't marry them.
2: By Israeli law, they
3: can't marry. We're already (laughs) there. This is where where I feel the Orthodox community has not internalized what the Russian Aliyah has done to Israeli society. And so look, I think that, that the Russian Aliyah has given us tremendous blessings. And from my perspective, one of the blessings that awaits us through the Russian Aliyah is an expansion of religious
2: pluralism. You know, between all of us, I would say that it's not about agreeing, but let's just agree it's not simple. And even if you have an opinion, there are prices to be paid. And when you're aware of the prices to be paid, maybe we deal and think and relate to each other with a little more gentleness. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Zvi Kelman and edited by Tali Cohen and music is provided by so-called to learn more about the shalom hartman institute visit us online at shalomhartman.org we want to know what you think about the show you can write to us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org subscribe to our show in the apple podcast app spotify and everywhere else podcasts are available yossi lana thank you for tackling a, a difficult one really it's wonderful to be with you